Welcome to the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics, NCSM, Leadership in Mathematics podcast. NCSM is an organization supporting mathematics education leadership at the school, district, college, university, state, province, and national levels. Its membership constitutes an international force collaborating to achieve excellence in mathematics education. Be sure to visit the NCSM website at ncsmonline.org. Welcome to episode 20 in the series of podcasts recorded at the NCSM Annual Conference in Salt Lake City, Utah, April 7th through 9th, 2008. In this episode, Lucy West speaks about coaching and capacity building. Coaching is a growing strategy for improving student achievement across the country. Is it working? In many cases, not particularly well. This session raises questions and offers suggestions for utilizing coaching strategically to upgrade instruction and learning at all levels. Lucy is introduced by Eastern Region 1 Director Lori Boswell. Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to this major session entitled Coaching and Capacity Building. It's my pleasure to introduce Lucy West to you this afternoon, although I'm sure that you're all here because you know of Lucy's work. Her particular expertise is effective effort-based instruction, and her thoughtful approaches to professional development that foster and sustain it have earned her recognition and professional partnerships internationally. She is presently a national consultant for school districts from coast to coast. Lucy's book, most current book, Content-Focused Coaching, Transforming Mathematics Lessons, is a result of collaboration between Community School District 2 in New York City and the Institute for Learning at the University of Pittsburgh. Ms. West has served New York City schools in a variety of roles as classroom teacher, mentor teacher, teacher supervisor, and administrator a true leader in mathematics. In 1998, she became a principal investigator for an NSF teacher enhancement grant called Reconceptualizing Mathematics Education Through Professional Development and is studying and developing content coaching as a professional development practice in districts across the country. She has worked with the nation's leading experts on Japanese lesson study and designed and implemented effective American versions of this practice. Her latest work weaves together the threads of coaching, professional learning communities, and lesson study in powerful ways that build and sustain improvement in many districts in which she works. It is my pleasure to introduce and ask you to welcome Lucy West. Thank you all so much for showing up. That's really very, very nice. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this talk and, and changing it from moment to moment. So hopefully it's going to all stick together. But I'm having a talk with my friend Barbara on the way over on the plane. She kept reminding me, two points. You want to make two points. So I'm here to make two points. And here are the two points. When we're working in education, when we want to make change in the world, we have to look for vital behaviors. And there are basically two vital behaviors that if we started to pay a lot of attention to, we would, we 
could possibly transform education. Now, why am I making these outlandish claims? Because they're true. Because, in fact, the more we start to think differently and behave differently, the more we change the world in which we live. The tricky part right now, I think, for educators is the culture in which we're finding ourselves. And the culture in which we're finding ourselves is a little bit scary. <clears throat> we are living in a culture in which silence seems to be the mode of the day. And uh, Leah Iacocca said it like this in terms of political perspective. Some of us are sick and tired of people who call free speech treason. Where I come from, that's dictatorship, not democracy. So I'm asking you to think about this. How democratic is your school or your district? I, think, I want to think hard about these ideas because I think that for some of us, the idea of talking about, talking to each other about the hard stuff, speaking out in times like these is a scary thing to do. I think when you have a lot of pressure coming at you in relation to testing, 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 mountains of data and all that kind of stuff that may actually be diverting us as opposed to keeping us focused, some of us find it very difficult to speak out. So this talk is going to be about talking and what it takes to be a leader, a courageous leader, a coach in the world of education. Vital behaviors are specific high leverage behaviors that when we practice them, they can transform a system, they can solve an, a seemingly intractable problem, or they can achieve what appears to be an impossible goal. I'm going to tell you two brief stories to illustrate my point. I've been reading a book called Influencers by Kerry Patterson. She's also written books called Crucial Conversations, Crucial Confrontations, a number of books that I use with people that I work with across the country to help coaches develop particular skills. And in the book Influencers, she tells a story about Dr. Mimi Silbert. Dr. Mimi Silbert started an organization called Delancey Street, um, I think it's Delancey Street Settlement or Delancey Street um, Foundation. She did it with $1,000 for people and a dream. And I'm going to tell you about her in a minute. And the second story I'm going to tell you about is a little brief piece about District 2, the district that I kind of grew up in as um, an educator. Because I want to point out the vital behaviors of both of these in, um, organizations. In Delancey Street, there's two vital behaviors that everyone must abide. The first one is each person is responsible for someone else's success. And the second one is, everyone is expected to confront everyone else every day about their behavior. How many of your schools look like that? Now let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Siebert. This organization has been in operation for 30 years. It has a 96% success rate of over $14,000 success stories. I mean 14,000 success stories. 
And she's gone from that $1,000 to multi-million dollar businesses that are totally staffed by criminals, drug addicts, gang members, prostitutes, and even murderers. Her dream was to help people who had been incarcerated, who had gotten caught on the wrong side of the moral way of living, to turn themselves around and become productive citizens and capable workers. And she did it. Now, when you say it's pretty hard to do, there are no therapists, there are no cops, there are no mandates. There are two vital behaviors. Now, that's not all there is, of course. But if you look at a system and you try to say, what about this is working? What about this do I want to replicate? We often replicate the superficial because we miss the vital behavior. So I'm going to take us now into an education setting, a more traditional one, Community School District 2. Community School District 2 was studied by many people because they followed a particular strategy of good influencers. And the strategy they followed was looking for positive deviance. District 2 was a positive deviant. We were accomplishing things in District 2 that most districts were not yet doing. So people like Richard Elmore from Harvard, Lauren Resnick from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Michael Fullen, and others studied what was going on in District 2 and tried to distill the vital behaviors. Unfortunately, in some cases, what got distilled was the, the products or the stuff, right? The walkthroughs. How many of you are having surveillance by walkthroughs? <laughs> right? That wasn't what we were doing in District 2. We had two vital behaviors in District 2 that I want to talk about. There may have been more, but the ones I want to talk about are we focused almost exclusively on teaching and learning. That's all we ever talked about. Teaching and learning, teaching and learning, teaching and learning. And we talked and talked and talked and talked. And that's the point I want to talk about today. We talked across levels, across departments, across roles, across schools, and across grades. We talked up and down the hierarchy. We talked within schools, at grade levels, in departments. We talked every way we could think of about teaching and learning. And we asked ourselves the question, who's missing from the conversation? Because a lot of times, people are making decisions for us, and we're not at the table. Have you noticed that lawyers, businessmen, politicians are making educational policy? Where are the educators? Where are we at that table? Who's missing from the table? So I want to talk about a few vital behaviors that are a little bit uncomfortable for most of us. The first one is the teacher down the hall. How many of you know about the teacher down the hall? She's the one you wouldn't put your, your kid in her class. You know about her? How many of you feel like it's your responsibility to make her successful? Delancey behavior number one. How many of us have spoken to her directly? and said, we've got to do something here. Something's off. 
How come the kids in your class aren't learning and the kids right next door are? How about the calendar routine? I'm a little bit puzzled by the idea that we're supposed to teach kids how to think, reason, and problem solve while we mindlessly implement routines that have been imposed upon us. So there's some calendar routine thing that's been going around. And people are basically supposed to go through these calendar routines every day with all their kids. So I was visiting my niece, a new, she's only teaching three years, really smart, you know, energetic teacher, loves her kids, they love her. And we were planning a math lesson together. And she says, well, let me just do the calendar routine, then we could do the math. So I'm watching her do this calendar routine. It's March. March 31st, to be exactly. Monday, March 31st, 2008, to be exact. So she said, uh, little girl, I forget the girl's name, come on up and you take us through the calendar routine. This little girl has been in that class since September, in which they've gone through that routine every single day, and she still can't find where the date is on the calendar and where's the word and whatever. Meanwhile, there's 20 very fidgety kids who know exactly where the date is, etc. Now, that routine, when she went through all the steps, took half an hour. For what? For whom? Who did it serve? The little girl still doesn't know how to find the date on the calendar, and everybody else still does. And they're going to do that again tomorrow. And she and I talked about that. Why are you doing this every day? Well, because my administrator says we have to do this every day. Wait a minute. Where are the vital behaviors here? <clears throat> I want to show you a clip. This is a very hard clip for me to show you. It's hard because I'm afraid that when you look at this, you're, not, you're going to demonize the teacher. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to see yourself in that teacher. I want you to ask yourself, how do my own beliefs sometimes prevent me from accomplishing what I set out to accomplish? I'm going to show you a teacher who represents every one of us as she expresses her concern about kids she perceives who can't do something. So what's the inference that you can, might make about, and we don't know this for sure, but it seems to me that if you say to kids, turn to your neighbor and talk, and they're not exactly doing that, then my inference might be they're not used to doing that. Right. I don't know if they are or not. So one possible inference is they need some practice doing that. They just don't have the skills. The group that you had, there are some kids that are significantly low. And you not knowing that, asking certain kids to contribute, they can't. They well, there wasn't one kid in that class who could not contribute. Well, they couldn't contribute necessarily what I wanted. Right. But they certainly could contribute. But I mean, as far as like having dialogue with math, there are some kids that really are very limited, and that's that's just a work in progress, and that's. Um, and I I think that that's one of the things I want to definitely talk about because I there was not one kid in that class who could not contribute. There was definitely kids in that class who needed more help contributing, and were contributing smaller ideas, let's say, or more basic ideas. 
So this business of what do, we, what do we mean when we say they're limited or they can't contribute? Contributing a little bit or what you heard from them, but it's their contribution to this point and what we see throughout school year is not enough to make them be successful in math. I mean, we have some kids that really, really, and I don't know about other schools, but we have some kids that are significantly low. I mean, besides the fact that they don't, they don't have basic skills, and that's an ongoing thing we're working on with them. There's the writing piece, the reading piece. There's, um, there's one particular child in that class that's almost a non-reader. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say who he is, but. It's all right, you don't have to. Well, I guess what I want to keep doing is challenging those beliefs. Okay, I want you to talk to each other for a minute. I've said some hard stuff so far. So what do you think about what I've said so far? Can you just talk to each other and um, then I'll come back and continue? that it's everybody else who has that belief system. But if you've ever read a book called Blink, think again. We all have beliefs like that that are getting in our way. And we have them at every level of the social stratum. I work in the poorest neighborhoods and, and districts in this country, and I work in some of the richest. And I hear those kinds of comments in some form or another across the whole spectrum. This is part of our issue. And what vital behaviors would cause us to do is question our own beliefs. And when we questioned our own beliefs, we would start to look for evidence contrary to what we presently believe, not evidence to support what we presently believe. I believe that part of the issue that's going on in this country is a misdiagnosis of problems. The problem, for example, that No Child Left Behind is trying to solve in some ways is a motivation problem. If I give you sanctions and I beat you over the head for not doing something, you'll start doing it. The problem is you have to know how to do it. If people, if any one of us knew how to help a student better than we presently do, wouldn't you be doing it? Would you really have to hit me over the head to do it? Give me a raise to do it? Give me a raise, for goodness sakes, we're working for pennies anyway. <laughs> right? So there's something off in the thinking, and it's the thinking I want to talk about. Test scores, this is, I've heard this so many times, it, it hurts. My head hurts, my stomach hurts. We can't do anything before March. We have to teach to the test. After March, we could teach for understanding. <laughs> Is that really what we were trying to do with No Child Left Behind? Who's benefiting from this? And then the good experience card. I am an experienced teacher. And I know about my students. And I know all these things, right? I've got news for you. Learning trumps experience any day. Any day. So what about these test scores? Test scores are a byproduct of teaching for understanding. They're not necessarily the evidence of understanding. What are we measuring anyway? I forgot. I'm not always clear. 
My question becomes, all right, if we have to play this game, how can we get high test scores without sacrificing what matters most? Our students, our kids' capacity to learn, their excitement about learning, their willingness to dive into learning, our learning. And then I would ask the question, why are we bothering? Who does the testing actually serve? So I'm, I'm saying some hard stuff. I hope you stop me in the hallways and talk to me about this because I'd love to sit across the table with, from you and hear what you have to say. That's what I'm talking about in terms of vital behaviors. There are many things we're going to disagree on, but until we can get to that place where we can disagree respectfully and listen to the truth in what each other is saying, we're not going to get anywhere. So I'm going to ask you if you know how to do some of these things. Because these are learnable skills. And they are critical if you're going to be a teacher or an administrator in education. I'm going to take teacher, coach, administrator, and say we are leaders. Whether we like it or not, we are, we are affecting the lives of the people that we work with every day. So we're either doing that consciously and skillfully or unconsciously and maybe making some pretty horrific mistakes. So how could you learn to and are you willing to speak up when your supervisor, your superintendent, your mayor is in case in New York City, says, we're going to do this thing. We're going to hold back kids every year. Despite the mountains of research that show that's a terrible idea, we're going to do that now if the kids don't pass their test. How many of us got up and said, wait a minute. What are you doing? I didn't. Did you? How do we handle colleagues? This is for coaches now. They, they don't want to learn right now. I've I got to focus on this test. I don't want to do these strategies. Or I, don't, I know a lot. I don't need to learn anymore. I, I'm a good teacher. Or I'm telling you, the kids can't do what you're asking them to do, so let me do it my way. The question becomes, how do, these are all the kinds of dilemmas that coaches bump into every day. And I find it really fascinating that the math panel has said, you know, the, the verdict is out on coaching. Well, I'm going to tell you later why I think the verdict is out on coaching. But let me share right now what are some of the real-life questions that coaches across this country raise when I ask them, what's on your mind? These are their questions. How do I raise the professional standards for planning when teachers think that reading the textbook and preparing the materials is planning? That's what planning is. That's what I do. That's my prep period. How can I uh, get a teacher to challenge her students when she's convinced they're incapable of meeting the standard? How do I refocus the conversation in which colleagues are complaining to work on their craft? Now, I have to say something about complaining. I'd like to plant this little seed. When we complain about something, it's because we're committed to something. So if I say to you, how could people think planning is reading this book and then getting the materials together? It's because I'm committed to a different kind of planning. And if you could get underneath my complaint, we could figure out a mutual purpose and what we both valued. So complaints are not necessarily a bad thing. 
unless they just stay as complaints. What do you do when it's obvious that a teacher you're working with is having difficulty with the mathematics and won't admit it? Literally tells kids the wrong thing. You're sitting there and they're telling them the wrong thing. What do you do as a coach? How do you give critical feedback after a lesson observation when you're worried about how it might be received? A lot of coaches worry about that. We all want to be loved. We all want people to think that, you know, we're smart and that we like them and we want to be liked. It's hard to give critical feedback. What options do you have when the teachers you're working with don't show up, are habitually late, or tell you they don't need or want your help? The question is, where's the principal in this picture? In most districts, the principal's left completely out of the design of the coaching. So when the coaches are put into the schools, the principals have a clue what to do with them. And I'll show you the consequences of that in a minute. So how do you keep teachers focused on teaching and learning when administrators are pushing test scores? Here's what I think. It's time to get really clear about the purpose and mission of coaching and coaches in education. Coaches are the only people in the system who have one sole purpose, as far as I'm concerned, and that is the improvement of teaching practice in the service of student learning. Everybody else has other tasks to do. The principal may be an instructional leader if we're very lucky, but has got a lot of management and now tons of paperwork and mandate nonsense to take care of. Teachers are focused on their students. Who's focusing on improving the work of teachers so their students can learn better? Coaches. You can call them whatever you want. Teacher leaders, coaches, math specialists. Every district has different names for these people. But that person, whoever that is in your district, that's their sole purpose in theory. In theory. So if we kept that in mind, that's a district two point of view, right? We're all we're going to focus on teaching and learning. And from the coaching perspective, that's my role. Then we have to start to name the things we can do and master them. So when we work with someone else, we can name them for the other person so they can try them on. And we can get smarter about things. Um, I'm thinking, for example, about talk because I'm talking about talk today, right? A lot of people say we do accountable talk. Or lots of people have read the book Classroom Discussions, which I think is a wonderful book. But we have different understandings of what that means. When you get kids to turn and talk, that's level one of something. What are they actually saying when they turn and talk? What are you doing after they turn and talk? Which kids do you call on and why? In turn and talk moves. Once you get kids to agree or disagree, what next? What level are you taking that? So there are many, many, many degrees to the talk, and we get stuck at mediocrity. Oh, we're all going to use turn and talk, so I want to see three turn and talks in your lesson today when I come in and observe. <laughs> okay? I don't really care when you use them or why you're using them, but we've got to check them off on the list right here that you did it. That's wrong. That's not, that's not a vital behavior. Teachers and administrators are not doing this because they're evil or rebellious or bad. 
They're doing it because that's the level of understanding we presently have. If we knew better, we'd do better. So we have to teach each other and invent new ways of thinking. And we can do that by staying with something long enough, a vital behavior long enough to learn something from it. I can tell you three reasons to use turn and talk. Here's number one. You know when you get that, that look in the headlights, like people are like, what is she talking about, right? You say, hmm, either I asked the really wrong question and nobody knows what I'm talking about, or it's time for turn and talk so you guys could figure out and answer or think about what I'm asking you. Two, um, you believe one thing. You think the answer is this, and you think the answer is that. Everybody turn and talk. Which answer is it, and how do you know? Right? That's turn and talk. The third one, I got an idea on the table, and I think some of you are getting it, but I'm not 100% sure. Slow down the conversation, turn and talk. What does it mean to find the square root of whatever? Tease it out. Three moves for turn and talk. When do I use turn and talk? It's not just turn and talk. There are purposes for it. There are times to use it and times not to use it. So we're going to look at some of this stuff in action. I've been having the absolute delight of working with Tony Cameron in Texas this year. And um, I'm going to show you a little clip, a couple of little clips from her coaching sessions with a teacher in, in Texas. This is post-conference. First time she's working with this teacher, although the teacher has been present when she's worked with the coach. So you're going to see three people sitting around a table. One's a teacher, one's a consultant, one's a coach. Uh, the problem they were working on had to do with how many people, how many buses. And the focus that the teacher, the teacher wanted to work on was getting kids to talk. Many of her students were second language uh, English speakers. And so many of them were very, very shy and didn't want to speak to us and whatever. And what made them think that their talk wasn't as strong as they thought it was, was they watched some video examples of classrooms in which talk was incredibly robust. They happened to be filmed in District 2. <laughs> but the truth is, it, what it did is it ratcheted up the bar for the teacher because you, you think you're doing something. The Tim study was so clear about that. We thought we were teaching to standards, but we weren't, right? Because we didn't see the picture of what it looked like when we were teaching to standards. Well, here's the same idea. They see this picture, and now, wait a minute, we're not exactly doing that when we talk about talk. So this business of what do we mean by, when we use the same words, is very important. And we spend so little time on that, and we gloss over it so quickly because we're getting to the test scores or the lesson design or whatever. And we never actually slow down and analyze what do you mean when you say whatever it is about the class. So, let's see. That one just doesn't work. So what, what happened in this film, and I'll just have to tell you about it, is the teacher was concerned. Here's what happened. Tony and the teacher were walking around the classroom with 25 people watching in another room on a screen. 
So the teacher, Tony, and the coach were in the room, and these kids were given this problem. And for the, they were asked to make posters of their strategies. So they were working in groups. And when the teacher sat down with the group, she did what a lot of teachers do. She started asking them a lot of questions. But the questions were really about her wanting them to do it sort of her way kind of thing. And Tony was watching and listening, and she kind of pulled the teacher over to the side and said, you know what, next, next group we sit with, would you mind if I sat down with the kids? Why don't you tell me which group you're worried about, and we'll go over there. She sat down with the kids, and the kids like, were almost inaudible. You couldn't hear them. They wouldn't talk. And Tony spent quite a bit of time sitting and waiting and, and asking a question and giving them an idea to, to look at each other and very patient, slow, tedious stuff that if you looked at, you'd say it has nothing to do with mathematics. The teacher was like nervous. Like, you know, the kids are not talking, right? And that silence kind of frightened her a little bit. In the post-conference, this comes up. The teacher said, you know, I gotta tell you, I felt really uncomfortable when you were working with the kids like that because I felt their pain is exactly the terminology she used. I felt their pain. Tony said, their pain, all we're doing is asking them to talk. She said, yeah, but I know what it feels like to be the person who is so far behind or can't explain it or whatever, and I felt their pain. And normally, her move would be to step in and rescue them. And Tony's move was not to do that. Her move was to teach them how to talk to each other. OK, look at each other. Do you know what the, what the assignment is? Can you tell me what the assignment is? No? OK. Well, uh, do, do you know what the assignment is? None of you know what the assignment is. So you're sitting here, you don't know what the assignment is. What should you do if you don't know what the assignment is? What do you think you should do? Ask somebody, what a great idea. So being you told me you don't know, now I'm going to tell you. And then she, now what did you do? What did you, talk to each other. And she went very painstakingly and patiently through these moves. And the teacher was actually able to name the moves. And Tony was able to help her see her own peace in why her kids were not talking. And that's the point. It's a lot of times when teachers say to me, these kids can't, and like in upper uh, economic districts, it's they can't work on their own. They're totally dependent on me. Really? I wonder how they got that way. <laughs> what are you doing that's creating that? Well, they, they just won't do it. Well, let's think about how that we can get them to do it. So we, we're talking about the hard things. Let's see, now this one is, um, now she, she starts to ask her to think about things she could try on herself. And so let's see if we can get this one to work. No? Is that the same one? No, it's the second one. Oh, that's the same one? It didn't work. Okay, so I'm not going to, anyway, that's, the point is what I just told you. So I'm going back here into this, and I'm going to set you up for the one that does seem to be working. Um, 
when you watch this next video clip, I want you to ask yourself, what are the vital behaviors of the coach? And what are the vital behaviors the coach is trying to get the teacher to internalize? So this time, it's going to be me coaching someone. Um, again, this is my first session with this teacher. Wonderful, eager teacher, trying on all kinds of things, teaching about four years, I think. And she's teaching fifth grade. They're using, I believe, everyday math. And we got into this problem trying to, she had been working on things like 10 to the third equals 10 times 10 times 10. And I said to her, do you think kids know what 1,000 actually looks like, what it, how much it really is, and, and that multiplicative notion of place value, do you think they get that part? And she didn't really think, she wasn't really sure. And so we are going to teach a lesson to see what they know. And we're going to use graph paper, centimeter graph paper, and we're going to ask them, um, how many pieces of graph paper do you need if the graph paper is 19 by 25? And you want to put it together in a sort of rectangular floor plan. So we spent the whole first day, we spent the first half of day one solving the problem ourselves, cutting out the graph paper, trying all the different ways we could arrange it, what kids might do or not do as adults. And then we stepped back and we thought about all the issues that kids might have with this. And of course, you know, when we got into the classroom, they surprised us. There were things we hadn't thought of. But this is before we got into the classroom. And um, the teach I asked the teacher, okay, so what do you want to work on instructionally? Because we've worked on the whole math piece. We're fairly clear at this point what we think the math is. Um, okay, so this one I think worked. Here we go. That's her first, that's my first evidence of her learning. Because if you heard what she said, in the past she would have made the problem easier for the kids. And through our whole discussion, she realized that's not really differentiation. That's making the problem easier for kids. Coming in with her, she's trying to help those kids. Okay, so when we, when we're working, one of the things we want to pay attention to is your tendency to want to do something else, right? And so we're going to kind of hold you back a little bit and watch a kid. So we're going to point in the direction of the kids you're worried about. And then we're just going to watch for a few minutes or seconds or whatever. And then we'll make a plan. Is there an intervention you want to do here? You can try one, I can try one. So, but it's not going to be to make the problem simpler. It's going to be to give them entry to the problem based on how they're presently thinking. So not changing their strategy. Right. Now, it may be that they change their strategy because engaging in conversation they get an idea. But we're not going to say, why don't you try it this way? Because that's not really engaging at where the child is. So two steps. One, give, breathe, and watch a little bit longer than you might normally. And then try to find a way to engage 
that finds out what the child is thinking. So generally the first, you can try this right, demonstrate first and then you can try it second. Go with the kid and say, so, what are you doing? Tell me what you're thinking about. So I can find out what the kid is thinking about before I figure out how to help them. Okay, so that's Okay, so that's the part I wanted you to see. So take a minute. Are there are you noticing any vital behaviors that the coach is demonstrating? And are there any vital behaviors that she's trying to help the teacher take on to understand? think some of the coaching vital behaviors are. Basically, it's talking about things that are usually undiscussable. So if you're talking about, you know, whether kids can or can't do something, that's often an undiscussable thing, and we usually are very polite and placating to each other. Uh, okay, you know, that kid can't, well, you know, maybe I'll work with him on the side, or, you know, we do something instead of staying in the conversation and finding a way to um, find out what the kid can do. Too much of our attention is paid to what kids can't do, not to what kids can do. The world is built on can do, not can't do. No champion ever focused on what they couldn't do. They focused on what they could do and got better and better and better at that thing, right? So the second thing is to get very specific. What specifically do you want to work on today? Mathematically and instructionally. Specific. And then rehearse it. Try it on. Talk to it, talk it through. Rehearse it, just like an actor would rehearse or an athlete would rehearse or anybody else would rehearse who has to perform. Because in some level, teaching is performing. Okay. The third thing is coaches. And this is the part that a lot of people I don't think quite get yet. It's not just my conversation with teachers. It's my conversation with principals, administrators at the district level, parents in the community even, you know, policymakers, whoever. Many educators shy away from political moves, right? We don't want to be politically active. We're very busy doing what we believe our work and our mission is. But we live in a world that has full of sound bites, and we're getting beaten up like crazy. So I suggest that maybe we rethink some of that and find a way to have fun talking to people about the work. Also, when we talk to people when we realize that because a person wears a, um, a title, that doesn't change them from being a human being. Sometimes they get caught in a power trip, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? They're human beings. All you have to do is talk to somebody and say, you know, I've been doing this calendar thing every day for, for 
117 days or whatever number of days we were in school, and I'm noticing something. Can we talk about how to do this calendar thing in a way that actually helps the kids that aren't learning and lets the other kids get on with life? You know, like maybe that would be something we could talk about. So I'm not fighting you on doing learning, teaching kids how to read a calendar. I'm wondering if the way we're going about it is actually accomplishing what we want. We need to learn to have those conversations with our supervisors with their supervisors. We need to learn how to bring together the people in a district across roles. The work that, how my work has shifted this year from last year is now when I work with districts, if a district calls me up, I won't go into that district unless they're willing to bring the principals into the group, the literacy specialists, the special ed people, the ELL people. I want everybody around the table. We're going to work on integrating, connecting the dots. Math doesn't live in a world all by itself. Math is part of the world. It's part of the whole group. And what are people learning from this? They're learning that when you sit down together and everybody's perspective is put into the design of a lesson, guess what happens to that lesson? It's so much better. And we learn from each other. And adults get excited again. And the culture changes. And that's what coaching is partly about. So I'm going to restate what I stated a little bit earlier and bring this to a conclusion. If we diagnose the problem incorrectly, we, we prescribe the wrong treatment. Many things that we perceive to be motivational issues are actually skill and knowledge issues. If they're motivational issues, you will know that your uh, application of enforcement gets you performance, then you'll know that it was a motivational issue. But if pressure is not getting you performance, it's not a motivational problem. Accountability is also a matter of knowledge, which means that enforcement has to be counterbalanced with support. The entire standards movement was originally based on two notions. Everyone could reach high standards with flexible time and differentiated support. We forgot about that picture over here and started beating everyone up to get high standards. We have to remember this part of the picture. In District 2, a, another vital behavior, something that Resnick and Elmore and Fullen teased out, was what's called two-way accountability. Whenever the district asked us to do something, they provided oodles and oodles of support to learn how to do it. If you didn't, then there was pressure, because there was no excuse not to have learned it. Schools get better because we learn new things not because we follow what other people tell us to do. And that's what happens when you start to spread techniques and best practices and programs. We get the shallow, superficial implementation of those things, and then we get frustrated because we've missed the vital behavior that's underpinning those practices. So. <clears throat> Think about coaching and think about the math panels like, you know, we're, we're out, we're, the jury's still out, and let's ask ourselves why. Which of the following things that coaches do 
across the country, in most places that I've visited, which things are vital behaviors focused on the improvement of teaching? Bring materials and resources to teachers. Cover classes when substitutes don't show. Do lunch and bus duty. Assist administrators with paperwork. Input data from tests. Comb through mountains of data that come in at dizzying speed. Teach full or part-time. Teach for unskilled teachers. I'm not saying all these are right or wrong. I'm saying these are what people are doing. Model lessons with no common planning or debriefing time. Write new curriculum or pacing calendars for the district ad infinitum. Monitor the implementation of district pacing calendars and use of materials so you become the police for the district. Share tricks with teachers to help kids master test taking. Every one of these things is people, what people tell me they spend their time doing. Observe teachers and give them feedback. Plan lessons with teachers. Co-teach lessons. Work with small groups of students who are failing. If I said to you, my name is Tiger Woods and I'm hiring you as a coach, could you go do lunch? Could you go get my lunch? Do you think I would waste your time on doing that? So part of the problem is we're not very clear about what it is we're supposed to be doing. And all of those things may at some point or another happen, but they're not the primary purpose of coaching. And when you ask coaches to show you their schedule for the week, too much of their time is doing things that have nothing to do with coaching. The jury's still out on what? Uh, what are we calling coaching? Coaching in name only. Coaching is a very sophisticated process that takes skill and is learnable. The skills are learnable, but they're not doable in cultures in which there's no precedent for talking to each other. There's no precedent for helping each other teach and think together. So even if you like my method, content-focused coaching, you're always working on culture. Even in District 2, where the culture was sort of already formed, we still had a lot of all the problems that you all bump into in your, in your districts. It's not like everybody in District 2 is enjoying this process. Do you know how many people left District 2? Tons of people left District 2 at all levels. They didn't like working that hard. So the practice that I'm urging you to think hard about and study and talk to others about is the practice of fearless talking and listening. And to learn how to listen to each other, how to ask each other hard questions and not take them personally. When I was, uh, I was just teaching the other day in, in New Jersey, a brand new teacher, a group of people, there are about 60 people in the room, we were doing the infamous brownie problem. You have seven brownies, four people, how much does each person get? Literacy, math, and administrators in the room. And first of all, I could tell an administrator like that, almost, almost instantaneously I could tell you which ones were the administrators. Guess what they were doing? They were not doing. They were sitting there monitoring or something instead of doing. So when I go over them, what are you doing? Oh, I get this all in my head. Oh, really? Well, what's in your head? You know, what are you, what are you thinking in there? You know, so we'd start, and they thought it was funny, and then we'd start a conversation. Well, two things happened that really are illustrative of what I want to say. One is, um, one of the 
I, I was like processing a lesson and a math coordinator for a particular district raised her hand and said, you know, this is all well and good, but most elementary math teachers, they, they don't know enough math and it's really not fair to expect them to. <laughs> now, my belief system's a little different than that. <laughs> now, I gotta tell you the truth though, there's a lot of people in the field who don't know math. So I'm listening for a grain of truth here. Okay, wait a minute. There's, there are a lot of people in the field who are very uncomfortable in mathematics. And it's not so easy to solve that problem and to pretend that it's not there. So we have to talk about it. But here's what happened. I said, I responded something like, well, that may be part of the reason, like if elementary teachers don't know math, it may be part of the reason why a lot of people in this country are math-phobic or don't know math. And she said, I, t I find that insulting that you would say that about elementary teachers. <laughs> I was like, what? So now I'm thinking, okay, Lucy West, con crucial conversations, right? Don't like let the lion out, right? I said, well, really? Um, so let me get this straight. You don't think it's important that teachers learn the mathematics they have to teach. She said, kids, they, they know one way they should be able to teach it in their own style. New belief system, right? That means kids should adapt to the teacher's style, not the other way around. Okay, that's two beliefs that I'm listening to. Nicole, African-American woman, who when I had given the problem, did this. And she was the kind of person that I would find a little intimidating sometimes because she sort of had an attitude, right? And I'm New York, I got an attitude, but there's certain attitudes that I'm like a little more cautious around. <laughs> so I went over to Nicole when she was, you know, working, and her, and so here's what she said to this woman. She raised her hand and she said, I gotta tell you something. She said, I didn't know how to do this problem. I'm a literacy person. She said, and I sat here and I, I saw that problem go up on that and I shut down. And then this lady comes over to me and says, where's your work? And I said, it's up here. And she said, well, that's not good enough. And I said, well, um, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to put it on paper. She said, well, well, here's what I think. And I said, yeah. She said, there's four brownies, you give one, four people give one to each person, and then you find the fattest person in the room and you give them the rest. <laughs> and I laughed, just like you did. And I said, that's fun, that's one, but that's not going to work here because we want to use up all the brownies. And it, everybody's got to have, everybody wants more brownies. And I stayed right next to her, and she started drawing pictures, and she got the solution to the problem. So she said to, so she said to this other woman, you know what? I got it. I could do math. It, I want another problem. <laughs> We've got to talk about the hard stuff. And people came up to me after that session and said, I'm glad we're talking about this stuff. This is not the soft, fuzzy, warm stuff that everybody thinks communication is about. Communication is hard. So I want to end with some statement that Lee Iacocca made, I think is a really interesting statement. The job of passing civilization along from one generation to the next ought to be the highest honor anyone could have. I invite you to wake up that sleeping lion who's in a trance 
from all the pressure to be quiet and do things you know are not passing civilization, at least the civilization I want to pass along. It's not doing that. We have to wake, out of, wake ourselves up out of the trance, take a big yawn and say, hello, this isn't working. And we have a way of helping each other get smarter. You may link to NCSM podcasts from your personal website, and audio files may be downloaded and played on any system for personal, non-commercial purposes. Provided that, unless permission to do so is expressly stated and granted, you do not modify the podcast content nor redistribute the MP3 audio files made available as part of the podcast, nor any audio file downloaded from any portion of the NCSM website.